Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. And I would like to invite you now to uh, open up uh, your copy of the Word of God. It might be a printed copy. It might be an electronic copy. But we would like to invite you to turn in it to the book of Galatians in the New Testament and chapter number four. If you don't happen to have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible in the back part. You turn to page 148, and you would find yourself parked right at Galatians chapter four. You know, Christmas is something that comes every year. And I think we become a little bit familiar with it, and we begin to make an assumption, and that is that everyone fully understands what Christmas is really all about. And the truth is, I think there's people that we live near, people we maybe work with, maybe even members of our family that don't really have the full picture, don't fully understand what Christmas is all about. You know, this week, if you're attached to Wildwood by way of Facebook or Instagram, uh, we sent out uh, a number of pictures of Christmas that were drawn by some of our children here at Wildwood with some devotional thoughts attached to them. And uh, I want to—I came across this information about some other people that asked some first graders to do that very thing, to draw a picture of Christmas. And of course, some of them drew Christmas trees and and some of them drew a Santa Claus. Uh, But one particular little guy uh, drew a picture, really, of the nativity scene, the manger scene. And so he had Joseph and Mary there with a baby, and he had the shepherds there, and he had animals there. But what was really interesting is that off to the side, he had this little fat man. And the teacher said to him, who is that? And his reply why, that's round John Burgeon there. Oh, round John Virgin. I can see how you could get there. <laughs> there was another six-year-old, and she drew a picture of the shepherds out in the field, and it was a nighttime picture. But what was interesting about the shepherds being out in the field is she had them all gathered around a particular object, and that object was a laundry tub. And so, okay, the teacher wants to know, what is that all about? And she said, well, that is a picture of the shepherds when they washed their socks by night. (laughs) So, you know, we, we need to understand that not everybody gets the full picture. We can smile at that, you know. They, they got it, but they, they didn't get all of it. And I just believe that it is easy to be familiar with Christmas and yet miss some important details. It is actually possible to grow up in a culture of Christmas and to miss the core essence of the Christmas story. I think we can be aware of it, and even fall short of the proper response that God wants us to have to Christmas. And so that is why we are involved in in a series entitled Righteous Christmas. And we're 
tracking a number of rights. First, we looked, uh, Mark took us to right expectation. Last week, we looked at right place. And today, we're coming to right time. And the text we have is one that is a little unusual to, to use at Christmas. It's Galatians chapter 4. And I would like to read verses 3 to 5, and I would invite you to follow along as I'm reading these verses. Verse 3 says, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So as we look at the story, the righteous story of Christmas, uh, we want to talk about the right time, and we're going to do that by looking at three things, and they grow out of the text that we have today. First of all, we're going to look at the problem of man, and then we're going to look at the provision of God in response to the problem of man. And then, most importantly, we're going to look at this third element, and that is the proper response that we are to have to the whole Christmas story. So we're going to begin with the problem of man. And when I say the problem of man, I'm talking about the problem of mankind, the problem of humanity, the problem that you have and that I have. And that problem is introduced to us in Galatians 4 in verse 3. And if you look at verse 3, there is a word there. It begins with a B that is the key word in the entire verse, and that is the word bondage. You see, bondage indicates that we have a problem. And it tells us that this problem tracks back to our childhood. We could say it in a phrase that often is thrown around today. We were born this way. There's a problem. There was bondage involved in our life. And we're going to look at a twofold aspect of our bondage. One surfaced here in Galatians 4. The other one we're going to see in the rest of the New Testament. What are we in bondage to? Well, notice what he says. While we were children, we were held in bondage. Here comes the first part. Under the elemental things of the world. I like to call that the ABCs of human philosophy. The elemental things of the world. If you have an NIV translation, it would say... We were in bondage to the basic principles of the world. That little phrase that is used here, same phrase is used in the book of Colossians, chapter 2 and verse 8. Here's what it says there. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. Now, when he says that here, he's not condemning human reason. He's not saying we shouldn't use reason. He's not condemning education. He's not condemning intellectual thinking at all. Rather, he's talking about the bondage that we have that goes all the way back to our childhood, in essence, to our birth. It's a bondage to the ABCs of human philosophy. It's a bondage to humanistic wisdom. And the problem with humanistic wisdom is that humanistic wisdom is hollow. 
And humanistic wisdom is void of divine truth. What are the kinds of things he's talking about? Well, he's talking about things like evolutionism. You know, evolutionism is something we've even grown up with around in our culture here. Evolutionism says there's no designer, there's no creator. I don't care how pretty something is or how amazing it is. There's no designer, there's no creator, there's no God. All of the things that we see in this world, they just happen by chance. They just suddenly appeared. You happen by chance, I happen by chance. You know, this ABCs of human philosophy, this humanistic wisdom would, would basically offers no explanation for evil. Why is there evil in the world? Well, they really can't explain that. And because they can't explain why it's here, they have no solution for it. We're talking about this idea of the ABCs of human philosophy, this humanistic wisdom, and, and it also breeds something called humanistic religion. Humanistic religion basically starts speculating. How does a person reach God? Well, one religion says this way, another religion says that way. You have to do this. By the way, that's the common thread in all of them, the humanistic religions, is there's something you must do, D-O. They'll define the list differently, but they all say there's something we need to do to reach God, but they're really speculating about it. There's a problem that man has, mankind, humanity, that means you and me, and that is we're in bondage. It goes back to our childhood. It actually goes back to our birth. And the first bondage is the ABCs of human philosophy. But there's a second bondage that we all suffer, and that is the bondage to sin. And the rest of the New Testament unpacks this for us. See, our problem, men and women, is that we were born with a corrupt heart. The Hebrew prophet Jeremiah wrote these words. He says, the human heart, this would include your heart, my heart, everyone's heart. The human heart is most deceitful and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Part of the bondage we have is a bondage to sin. And we learn from Romans chapter 6 and verse 20 that without having Jesus Christ invade our life, we're described there as, and I'm quoting, slaves of sin. We're in bondage to sin. Now, I know it's about Christmas time, but it, there's always a good time to develop a little bit of theology. And there is a theological term for this idea of being in bondage to sin, and that theological term is total depravity. That's something that we all suffer from, total depravity. What does total depravity mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be or that humanity is as bad as it could be. What total depravity means is this, that the contamination of sin extends to every aspect of our being. The contamination of sin affects how we act, what we do. It affects how we speak. It affects how we think. Total depravity means that the contamination of sin has invaded every aspect of us as people. It has invaded the moral realm of our life. It has invaded the financial realm of our life. It has invaded the sexual realm of our life. We are in 
bondage to sin. Now, there's people out there who would say, wait a minute, now, wait a minute, Bruce. I just disagree with that. I disagree that that's really the problem. Uh, They might say the problem is, if you really want to know what the problem is, the problem we have is the environment. You know, it's the culture, it's the society. That's really the problem. And what we really need to do to solve the problem is we need to better educate people. If we could just better educate everybody, the problem would go away. That's what some people would say. But here's what's important to know. God hasn't given us the privilege of defining our dilemma. He hasn't done that. Our dilemma is, as human beings, we're in bondage to the ABCs of human philosophy and in bondage to sin. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, wow, this is a lot of fun just before Christmas. I mean, this is the season of joy. Why are we talking about this? Well, I believe that we cannot really appreciate a solution without knowing the problem. You know, you you really can't appreciate light without knowledge of darkness. You you can't really appreciate the warmth of heat without bone-chilling cold. And we cannot really appreciate God's provision without understanding man's problem. So the first thing we're looking at today is the problem of man, the problem of humanity, and the problem is we're under dual bondage. We're under bondage to human philosophy when we're born, and we're under bondage to sin. Second thing, though, we want to look at comes right out of our text, and that is the provision of God for the problem that man has. Look at verse 4. And to me... There are just two words that jump out of verse 4. He's talked about the problem of man. You come to verse 4 and you have the word, but God. But God. God did something about our problem. Verse 4 reads, but when the fullness of time came, God See, you see, this bondage that man has, mankind has, it can be traced back through the centuries. It goes all the way back to the beginning of time. And what is interesting is that while God always had a plan, he waited until conditions were ripe, when they were right, when the time was exactly right, and then he acted. If you know your Bible history, you know that between the Old Testament and between the New Testament time, There were 400 silent years where God said absolutely nothing. Four centuries, not a blip from God. But then that changed. And so the provision of God came at the right time when the fullness of time came. It was the right time, by the way, in multiple dimensions. It was the right time politically. It was the right time politically. You say, well, what does that really mean? Well, most of the civilized world at the time that Jesus appears on the scene was under one government. It was just one government. There was just one citizenship. That was very unusual. You know, it would be much different than coming in a time when there were hundreds of closed-off, isolated nation-states that existed. But that isn't when Jesus came and God sent him. 
It's when the, the whole world was under one government, one citizenship. And it, it was the right time politically. If you know anything about the Romans, there was this incredible, and the Roman Empire came, this incredible explosion of construction that the Romans did. The best transportation systems the ancient world would ever see came in the era of the Roman Empire. The Romans just excelled at paving roads and building bridges over rough terrain. You know, I remember years ago when I was in Latvia in the Soviet Union era, and you'd get out on the roads. There were no road signs. There were no mileage markers. You didn't even know where you were or where you were going or how far you'd come. That's changed today. But do you know that it was the Romans who came along and they developed the idea of really signage and mileage markers. The first mileage markers came in the Roman Empire. And, and you know, one person has calculated this. They took Paul's three missionary journeys. Are you aware of Paul's three missionary journeys? And they tried to figure out how many miles he covered in those three missionary journeys. And the figure they came up with was 5,000 miles. He traveled 5,000 miles in an era in which most people never went further than 10 miles from where they were born. Why is that? Well, it was the right time. It was the right time politically. The Romans also developed widespread sea travel, uh, all these routes that they set up between various continents. The Romans did all of that. And if you're going to get a message out, if you're going to get some truth out, it was the right time to do it. It was the right time politically. Rome also was proud of what it called the Pax Romana. Uh, that is, the, the Roman peace that they brought to the world, the safety that they brought to the world. I, I was going to look it up, and I forgot to do it, to see how much of a percentage our military budget is in the United States. But do you know in the Roman Empire, the military budget was 50%. They maintained 250,000 military, a quarter of a million why? Because they wanted the Pax Romana. They wanted the Roman peace. They wanted the whole empire to be safe. And when you have a safe empire, not only do you have the roads to go on and the shipping routes, but you have reasonably safe travel, which was virtually unknown in the ancient world before. You know, it was the right time politically. Do you know that there were no passports? There were no visas needed in those days. It was very much like the EU. How many people here have traveled now since the EU has been formed and, and practicing in Europe? So I see a number of your hands. You know, when I first went to Europe, it wasn't like that. You were having to show your paperwork everywhere you went. Now you go, you go into the EU and you can just cross every border. You're not flashing a passport at anybody. You don't need a visa to go anywhere. Well, that was the kind of an era that Jesus came into. It was the right time politically. It was the right time culturally. You know, Greek was the international language of the Roman Empire. Uh, the New Testament was written in what's called Koine Greek. It's spelled with a K with an E on the end, Koine. It just literally means common Greek. See, it, they had a language that everyone could understand, that all could read and heed. That's very, very, very important if you want to get a message out. See, a miniature, historically, miniature scale of that in the Soviet Union. You know, when the Soviet Union took over all these nations, they forced everybody to learn Russian. Nobody wanted to learn Russian, but they were forced to learn Russian. Now, that creates a great advantage. 
And I, I have seen people in Latvia decide that they're going to go to some of the Muslim nations that were part of the Soviet Union, like Uzbekistan and Tazakhstan, and they go there. They don't know the native languages there, but they know Russian, and the people there know Russian. And so because they had this universal language, the communication of truth becomes very easy. We had that same thing on a much broader scale at the right time when Jesus came. Greek was the international language. It was the common language. And by the way, it's a very highly precise language. If you're going to try to communicate details about God and God's plan, you want a precise language, and that was Greek. You know, we have in English one word for love. Uh, they had four. Phileo, eros, storge, and agape. Four different words. You know, phileo refers to the love for a friend or a companion. Eros refers to the love of erotic passion between a man and a woman. Storge refers to this sort of affectionate love that you might have for a child or something. Agape refers to sacrificial love. It was a very precise language. If you're going to communicate about the plan of God to rescue the world, this, is, this was the right time. It was the right time culturally, politically. It was also the right time spiritually. You know, Greek philosophy, which had dominated before the Roman Empire emerged, the Platonism, the Stoicism, the Epicureanism, it just left people empty. And then the Roman mystery religions were a dead end also. It was the right time, politically, culturally, spiritually. At the right time, at the ripe time, God acted. Look at verse 4 again. But when the fullness of time came, what does it say? God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son, someone who already existed, someone who was deity, someone who was actually, as the New Testament tells us, the creator of the world. In Colossians 1.16, it says this, speaking of Jesus, in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. All things have been created through him and for him. God sent forth his son, the actual creator of the world. Now, we, we really don't know who wrote this piece, whether it was a guy or a gal, but I really like it. It goes like this. The maker of the universe for man was made a curse. His holy fingers made the bough where grew the thorns that crowned his brow. The nails that pierced his hands were mined in secret places he designed. He made the forests whence there sprung the tree on which his body hung. He died upon a cross of wood, yet made the hill on which it stood. The sky which darkened o'er his head by him above the earth was spread. The sun which hid from him its face by his decree 
was poised in space. The grave in which his form was laid was hewn in rocks his hands had made. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. God's son, deity. But then it adds this phrase there, notice it, born of a woman. That points to his humanity. And, and he had to be man in order to die in our place. And, and he had to be God in order to be untainted from sin so he could qualify to be a substitute for you and a substitute for me. And he had to be God in order to die for the sins of the whole world. A mere man couldn't do that. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman and born under the law. And Jesus, when he arrives on the scene, he perfectly fulfills every section, every provision of God's law. He meets all of God's standards of righteousness perfectly. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. That verb, sent forth, means to send forth for a purpose. What was the purpose? Well, we have a dual that that follows. So that, verse 5, he might redeem those who are under the law. The first purpose behind sending forth his son was to redeem. Now, this is a beautiful picture that we don't really get in our culture at all because it's a term that comes from the slave market of the day. And that was a very significant thing in Jesus' time because there were, think about this, 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And they knew what it meant to bring a price to purchase someone's freedom out of the slave market. And that's why God sent his son to redeem, to fully free us from our bondage, the bondage to the ABCs of human philosophy, the bondage to sin. And he had to pay a purchase price. And the purchase price that he paid was his own blood, which he shed on the cross. And you'll see over there that we have a Christmas tree and we, we have the cross. And I like to say this, that the cross is God's Christmas tree. And it was there he shed his blood. God sent forth his son. What was the purpose? To redeem, but also, wow, this gets to be exciting. The second purpose was to adopt, to adopt. Notice it goes on to say in verse 5, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This, this is amazing. He not only rescues us, he not only frees us from the dual bondage that we had, but well beyond that, he also says, I want to adopt you into my family. I want you to become an heir with me. You know, one of the things that, that our family has loved doing over the years is to watch Survivor. I don't know how many of you are Survivor fans. We, we watch it every time. There's two seasons every year. 
And uh, when, when our kids have been all around, we would watch it together. You know, now we have, for example, Jennifer and Zach, they're missionaries down in Mexico, and uh, we can't watch it together, and they cannot watch it live. They have to watch it on the internet after it happens, but we, we call back and talk back and forth about the episode. You know, because you see what happens at the end of Survivor, the, the, the last Survivor gets what? What does they get? One million dollars. You know, and, and that's just amazing. Wouldn't you love to be an heir to one million dollars? I mean, anybody wouldn't want to take the money? It would be just so exciting to be an heir to receive one million dollars. But this is amazing news that we would be, because God sent his son, adopted into his family? I mean, you know, $1 million pales in comparison, $10 million, $100 million, $1 billion. It pales in comparison to being adopted into the family of God and being an heir with Jesus Christ. You know, that's why we have songs that are so joyous that we sing Around Christmas time, we sang uh, one as we opened up today. You know, hark the herald angels sing. Just listen to the words. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. So today, as we're looking at the right time, we've looked at the problem of man. We've, we've now looked at the provision of God. Now we want to get to the most important part, really, for us as individuals, and that is the proper response. The proper response. You know, I believe in the fullness of time, God brought you here today. I don't believe it's an accident that you're here today. And it's important to understand that God just didn't bring you here today to listen to some guy talk uh, for some 25 or 30 minutes. You see, he brought you here today because he wants you to respond to the truth that we've seen of the problem of man and the provision of God. And I just believe that God is calling every person that's here, whether you're in your golden years, and I'm certainly getting into those now, or whether you're in your middle years, or whether you are a youth, or whether you are a kid that is here today. In light of the problem of man and in light of the provision of God, here's the question we all need to be asking ourselves. What does God desire of me? And I believe that proper response can be summed up with two words. The first word is receive. Receive. We, we mentioned how the cross is God's Christmas tree. It was upon that he paid the penalty for your death. He took your place. And salvation is very much, if you can picture the cross being God's Christmas tree, you know, salvation is, is in essence a package that is provided 
under God's Christmas tree, and it has your name tag on it. So just picture that. Under God's Christmas tree, the cross, there is a package for every man, woman, and young person in the world. It has your name tag on it. But, but just like a, a, a present that can be under your own Christmas tree that may have your name on it, it's not really yours, right, until you receive that and you open it up. And so that's the first question for all of us. There's a package under God's Christmas tree with your name tag on it. It's, it's salvation, it's forgiveness, it's eternal life. And the question is, have you ever received it? Have you opened it? And we receive it and we open it by faith. You hear people talking about faith. That's what it means. That we believe the truth of who Jesus is. We believe and trust in and rest in and count on the truth of what he came to do for you and for me. And here's the trick in this. That unless you actually receive the gift, it's never yours. You know, if you were to die today or to die this week, are you certain where you would be in eternity? Some of you are thinking, you know what, I really don't know what would happen. Well, my encouragement to you is you can be sure. You can be sure today if you open the present that's under God's Christmas tree by faith. You believe in that, you rest in that, you count on that, you make a life decision. That's what I'm counting on to bring me back into a relationship with God, to deal with the problem I have as a human being. I'm looking to his provision to be the answer. And so the first response is receive. But there's a second response that makes up a proper response to the problem and the provision of God, the problem of man, the provision of God, and that is the word worship. Worship. How do we respond with worship? Well, after we receive the ultimate gift by faith and we open it and we embrace it and we believe it and we trust in it, what we then do is we express our adoration for Jesus Christ. We choose to give him gifts back. You know, that very thing was acted out by the wise men. God is bringing the gift of Jesus, and the wise men bring gifts in response to God's gift. So I'm going to ask you this question. What gift are you going to give him this Christmas? What gift of appreciation do you give back to him? Maybe you're going to choose... I don't know what your, your life situation is. Maybe you're, you're saying, you know what, I want, to honor, I want to honor him with a gift of appreciation. I want to honor him in the area of the finances of my life. Maybe, you know, you, we, we've been just involved and you just spend the money, you do the way you want to do it, and you just say, I haven't really worried too much about what Jesus thinks about it. Maybe a gift that we can give in worship to him and appreciation is, so you know what, I want to bring my finances in line with what the Bible teaches. Or maybe it's your dating life or your sex life, and you say, that's a gift I want to give to him. I want to honor him in that area of my life rather than just sort of satisfying and doing what I want to do. You know, you know we have a tendency, those of us who have opened up the gift of salvation from underneath 
God's Christmas tree, and we come to know him as our rescuer. A lot of times what happens in life is that if you think of the, our life as a car, we're, sort of, we're, we're driving the car. You know, our, our hands are real tight around the steering wheel, and, and we're just doing it the way, we're driving it the way we want to drive it. I'm just going to take this puppy where I want it to go, and maybe the gift that we give is we say, what, you know what, God, I think I'm going to take my hands off the wheel and slide over and let you drive for a change. That's a gift that we can give him in response to his wonderful gift that he has given to us. Maybe, I don't know what it might look like. I mean, what gift can you give him this Christmas? Maybe it's the gift to say, you know what, I'm going to get connected to a church home. I tend to go in and out of church. I'm very irregular. I'm not around very much. I'm not really connected. That's a gift I want to give him this year. Maybe it's a gift of, of saying, you know what, I want to honor my parents I haven't been real appreciative. I haven't been real expressive. They've done a lot for me. They've provided for me. Maybe that's the gift you want to give him this year. Maybe the gift is just to say this. You know what? I want to be a little more like Jesus. When I look at Jesus, you know what I see? I see someone whose priority in his life was to serve other people. You know, and maybe you'd say, hey, if someone just looked at my life, would they say that? Well, you know, when you look at Bruce, you look at someone who just serves other people. You know, maybe that's a gift. Or maybe it just says, you know what, I'm going to start operating the same way Jesus did, and that is I'm going to consider other people as more important than me. Because a lot of times it's been about me. What gift are you going to give him this Christmas? The cool thing is that the hope that we all needed came at the right time. And it came on a dark night. 